turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts at 18, and you can also, if you're, if you're quick, you can get over to Mark 8. That will be a helpful passage as well. This is a passionate topic for me. It has served me well over the years um, of being a young man growing up in Christ and even in the ministry, um, but it's also a real big struggle for me still. So it is a big topic for me. The question is this. This is the big question as you're turning to Acts 18. Where is growth to be found? Where do we find it? I'm talking about spiritual growth. Do we find it in classes, activities? I mean, I guess to some degree you hear truth, you might grow. Do we hear it um, alone? Do we hear it in groups? What about Sunday school? Is growth found in Sunday school? You know, some of you might not know this about Sunday school. It was actually invented in the 1700s in England, but it didn't look like then what it does now. The idea behind Sunday school was mission, mission to the city. It was not built to teach Christians, but there was just a lot of kids that did not go to school. Back then in England, if you were a kid, you just didn't go to school. You had to be wealthy to go to school. So if you were just a a kiddo, you were working in the factories. You were working for somebody. And so the church back then designed Sunday school to teach them how to read, using the Bible as one of the main texts. Their whole goal was to get people in front of the Word of God in a way that they can understand it. It was missional, kind of like a VBS would be today or a vacation Bible school. It's changed over the years, though, hasn't it? Hasn't it? You know, and listen, before I say this, because this might be a little bit provocative for some people, I'm not against Sunday school. In fact, we'd like to have Sunday school here. We've been talking about it forever, getting some sort of a Sunday school slate, some sort of a class offering. But it would not be just to inform the Christian. We would like to bring back the vintage ideals behind it, which is to not just teach you, but your neighbor who isn't even here today, right? To maybe have more of a missional focus in it. Because don't raise your hand, but how many of you, and have we not seen it be possible for a young person to go through Sunday school for a giant chunk of their life and exit that without being a Christ-formed disciple? I mean, I'm in that group. I'm in that group. Maybe, maybe Sunday school is not where growth is found. Maybe it's where the beginning of growth is found. But is it possible to hear things and not have it translate down to our heart, informing our convictions and even changing who we are as a people. Maybe it's not found there. You know, Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, they did a study back in the early 2000s. Some of you have probably read the book that they wrote after this study because it was such a big deal and it kind of sent ripples and shockwaves throughout the whole church world. And if you were a pastor of any kind, of any dimension, you've heard about what they did. The whole question that they posed before the study is, where is growth found? How do we form solid, Jesus-anchored disciples? See, one of their philosophies, and we'll put this up on a screen, was this. This was before the study. This is Willow Creek saying, and I quote, The more a person far from God participates in church activities, the more likely it is those activities will produce a person who loves God and loves others. In other words, the more we get people in the Christian softball team or the biker Bible study, the more we get them in things, just anything, put a logo on it, make it at the same night every week, the more they do things and the more they will become disciples. So they started a study. 
6,000 anonymous surveys. This is a church of roughly 30,000 now, anyway. 6,000 surveys. And then three years later, they took another 6,000 surveys. And then on top of that, they interviewed 300 people who had left the church already. And then they had another 150 or so, give or take, 150 in-depth spiritual interviews. And you know what they found? This is what they found. And I quote again. Does increased attendance in ministry programs automatically equate to spiritual growth? To be brutally honest, it does not. Turns out growth is not found in activities. Growth is not found in classes. It's not found in things like that. So they started to shift as a church, writing a book on it. And the shift was in order to become less of a spiritual parent and more of a spiritual coach. And good coaches spiritual coaches. They don't feed everybody forever in different activities, but they will in fact teach growing disciples how to feed themselves and how to live a life of growing as a disciple, even if you're surrounded and flanked by people who cannot lift the spoon to your mouth to feed you. That was their shift. You know, Matt brought that phrase up when he was up here, and again, we didn't talk about this before he came up. The the phrase being fed It's something that we hear. In fact, a lot of us say it all the time. I like this place because I am being fed. I'm going to another church because here I'm not being fed. So I'm sticking at this other place because it is is a place where I can feel like I am being fed. And I think what I think of when people say being fed, from the most of my ability to understand what they're saying, is, is to find a place, a pastor, a preacher, a communicator, that can deliver up God topics in such a way that is intriguing, educating, and inspiring. But a lot of times growth is not even found there. A lot of times growth is not even found in a place like that. Maybe the beginning of growth, but not growth. Sure, when you're young in the Lord, you need to be fed. I mean, I've had babies. We've got kids. We had to feed them. They don't have the dexterity. It's in the hair. It's on the floor. It's in the the little apron with the plastic pockets. It's everywhere. We have to feed them. We pick up the spoon and we put it to their mouth and they slurp it up and they grow. But eventually we make them hold their own fork and they feed themselves. This is why Paul is telling the Corinthian church, he says this, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. Now he's reflecting back whenever he met them. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not that ready. And here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. There in our culture today, not just the American church culture, but really the southern church culture, there's a big reshuffling of the deck all the time of people dashing from church to church to church, looking for the church that does the best job of lifting the spoon to their mouth (laughs) because they're not feeding themselves. Who can feed me? Who could feed me? And if the Christian stops growing, then it becomes the fault of the church who's not very good at feeding them anymore. And you see that happening. I've seen it happen for years. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, verse 11. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the truth of God, the teachings of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. You catching this language? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? So I think this was going on even back then in those days. 
is growth found in permanently being spoon-fed? Is that where growth is found? I think that's what Paul was thinking of. And when I say growth, I mean something very basic, looking less like yesterday, more like tomorrow. Less like the first Adam and more like the second Adam. Looking more like the one who is forming us and less like the person that we used to be. More like someone who is alive in Christ and less like someone who is dead in Christ. And this is what the Bible calls discipleship. Discipleship is just simply looking more and more over time like the one who is forming you. Doesn't look like, doesn't mean looking like the person who is working with you. Maybe some of you have mentors in here or someone has someone that's working with you. Discipleship is not necessarily looking like that person unless it is where that person looks like Christ. True discipleship is looking more like Christ. And it is something that Jesus is incredibly excited about. This is what he says in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of the speech pathology department of the blue collar in Fountain City, making disciples of those that make over $200,000 a year, making disciples of those who make under $18,000 a year, making disciples of those who have spent time in prison, making disciples of those who've never even been in one before. Oh, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all different rhythms of life, all little pockets of humanity, making disciples. But listen, this is a passionate topic for me because I really believe in this. Hear me, not just disciples, but disciples who can replicate. You look back into Genesis. You see God creating fruit, but not just fruit, but fruit with seed in it. God is always thinking of one generation beyond. He doesn't just make fruit that will die on the vine and not reproduce, but he's looking. He's looking for disciples that will make disciples that will make disciples. We actually have this in 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite passages where Paul is talking to one who is a disciple of him. And he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's four generations. That's Paul to Timothy to faithful men to those who they could teach. And it goes on and on and on. Because the good goal in building disciples means that they are able to, in turn, build disciples. So if classes and programs aren't always where growth into solid discipleship is to be found, then where? How are we to be discipled? Should we be looking for other people to disciple? How do you make disciples of all nations? So what I want to briefly talk about this morning is where do we find growth? As Jesus' people, where do we find growth? Okay? Let's look at Acts. Acts 18, if you're turned there in your Bible, is a very cool passage. Very, very cool passage. Actually, in all the times I've, I've been a preacher, it's my very first time to teach this. So I'm very excited about it. This is what the Word of the Lord says to us. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, oh, and he went to see them, forgive me, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, pause right there for a moment, because what we have is we have Paul leaving one city and going to the next. He arrives in Corinth, and this is a pretty big deal. Corinth is 20 times larger than Athens, 20 times. It's got way more people than Knoxville does. It's a big city, and he's alone. He floats in, and he's alone, and this place has a giant reputation. Corinth does. 
It's not an old city. It's kind of a new city, new money, right? There were no buildings there that were over 100 years old. He'd just come from Athens where it was nothing but old buildings. So it's a very different culture. Athens was more like a, a historical city full of academics, like a Boston. You think Boston today. That's what Athens was like. And then he arrives in this new city, and it's like Las Vegas. Everything is new. Everything is lit up. Nothing is old. He goes there, and this place has a reputation for being sexually immoral. And that was partly because of two reasons. One is it was a way station. People were coming and leaving all the time. A lot of transients in that population. But there was also a giant temple there, the Temple of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love to the Greeks, and how they worshipped this god was through immoral sex. Think about that for a minute. Right? 1,000 prostitutes at this temple. We don't have a religion like that today, where instead of communion or giving or worship, the way that a people worships their god or gods is through immoral sex. Now, if we did have one, our culture would embrace it, I'm sure, but we don't even have anything like that. Think about how weird that must have been, coming in and seeing something like that. And I want you to remember where Paul has been. Thessalonica, he was run out of there. Philippi, he was beat. Berea, he was run out of there. Athens, he kind of didn't, he didn't leave on a high note with Athens. And then he ends up alone in this place, Las Vegas. Another thing about Corinth, because of the way the city was put together, it was a very popular place for religions to start up. You'd see religions start up because you'd have these charlatans, these smooth talkers get up on the street corner and fleece people, just basically take them for all of their money. So as you'd see a, a lot of burgeoning cults occurring in Corinth. This is one of the big reasons most scholars, and I tend to agree with them, most scholars will believe that this is why Paul picks up a trade. Right? He knew how to work with tents, and he knew how to work with leather, but at the same time, he'd, he'd been kind of depending on the generosity of the church. He'd been walking alongside what the church was able to give, and now he's picking up a trade. Most scholars believe he did this because he's trying to distance himself from the other charlatans starting up something false, right? Because now there's a little bit of a disdain and a distrust between your average Corinthian and your local religious leader. So he was going to do it for free. He was going to make everyone understand that there's nothing in it for me financially. And then he bumps into the coolest couple in the Bible, Aquila and Priscilla. These guys are awesome. Priscilla, that's more of her like slang name. Prissa is how you will see her referred to later on in the Bible throughout the New Testament. That's more of a formal name, but they are never mentioned unless they are mentioned together. Always mentioned together, this couple that does life together, they do ministry together. We don't really know if they were Christians or not when Paul bumped into them, but most people believe that they probably were because we don't have a conversion story or a baptism, and Luke's pretty detailed on that. So most, most likely they were young Christians, and they stayed together and they worked together. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Do you guys find that interesting? You know, back then, tradespeople, they worked downstairs and they lived upstairs, kind of like downtown. We have a lot of that downtown in Knoxville. You'll have like a photographer downstairs living upstairs, a business owner downstairs living upstairs. This is most likely what was going on, but you know that they saw each other all day long and all night long. They're living and working together. Now, my mom and dad worked together and they lived together. There was no secrets between the two of them. I mean, that is life on life if there was ever life on life. So let's pick it up in verse 5. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's actually a totally different sermon right there. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we're starting to see some momentum perk up, right? Verse 9, very important, very important. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Why would God tell him this, and why would he tell him then? You ever think about that? This is usually about the time where Paul's picking up a beating somewhere. It's starting to happen. People are starting to become Christians. Notable people are starting to become Christians. By now, in whatever city he's in, he's usually in the stocks, being drugged before some court. He's being tortured. He's being mocked, ridiculed. Or someone's having to devise an escape plan for this guy, usually right here. And now he's in a tougher city than he's been in in the past. And so the Lord speaks to him very kindly and says, Hey, hey, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Everything's going to be fine. And what it does is I think it fortifies his soul to drop an anchor there and get some work done. He stays there for 18 months. It says that in the very next verse. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God is sweet to us, isn't he? Knowing that I could just imagine what was going on in Paul's mind. He wasn't perfect. Paul was not Jesus. I can imagine him thinking, golly, I'm still bruised up from Philippi. I still have markings on my back from the rods. My back still hurts from the stocks they were putting. I know there are people out there looking for me right now in Athens. I should get out while it's good. He doesn't. Stays for 18 months. This is my first point in how Jesus' people find growth. Jesus' people, I believe, find growth in close proximity and over time. This is going to correspond quite a bit with what Matt was just saying a few minutes ago. But as much as we like to use the phrase life on life, we use it here a lot, I wear that phrase out, right? Life on life. As much as I like to use the phrase, I will be the first to admit to you it's highly uncomfortable for me. It's highly uncomfortable for me to do life on life with anyone. I don't know that I really want you standing that close to me. To see my, my flaws before I can Photoshop them out, to see everything that makes me tick, you'll see my stuff. I don't know that I like that. You know, when me and my bride, when we were in Tampa Bay, our second church plant, Tampa, I mean, it's not a place you're really going to find a Floridian. Everyone comes from somewhere else in the world, usually the islands or Manhattan. You'll see a lot of people imported in. And the one thing we, we, we come to very quickly is that everyone else in the world, their idea of a personal bubble is a little bit different from us coming from West Texas. Here's our bubble in West Texas. There's really no need to be much closer than this, really, right? But in Tampa Bay, I mean, they're right up on you. There would be moments where I just kind of move away and they just kind of follow my lead a little bit. They're right up. It really bothered my wife quite a bit. It started to bother me. I mean, they're really up on you. You're in a supermarket and they're touching you. You're in the gym and they're touching you. You think you're about to get pickpocketed or something like that or hit on. I mean, they're right there, right on you. That's just how it is. Drove us nuts. 
But here's the thing. Metaphorically, spiritually, spiritually, that's where growth is found. Really close. Very close. And, and over a lot of time. Time. And then more time. And when that time is over, even more time stacked upon that. And here you have it happening. A single radical in Paul in this normal blue-collar family, this couple. They're doing life together, growing together, working together, and discipleship was happening. Growth was happening. You know how we know this? Because this young, cool couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they ended up becoming part of Paul's core team and helping with two major church plants. Major church plants. And as different as they were, they built a connection. Ministry was happening in that connection, and growth was happening in this connection. And that's an important word. Not only do we want to be fed as a culture, we want to connect. And, and, and listen, I think God put in us the desire to be fed and connected. I think that's something that God put in us. I think we're the ones that break it. When we require other people to connect to us, and we require other people to feed us, I think that's where it goes off the tracks. But there's nothing wrong with connection. The number one reason that people struggle with churches, though, it's not ever really because of the teaching. I mean, sometimes, but it's usually because of connection. I can't connect. In this Willow Creek study, what they found out, this was frightening for me to read, but I know it's true. 25% of the people that attended Willow Creek were attenders. 25% were considering leaving the church. I've been told that's probably true with every church. The number one reason they put down in the anonymous survey for why they were thinking and considering leaving, they couldn't connect. They couldn't connect. I mean, we're not like that much more awesome than any. I mean, I bet 25% of you are thinking about that right now. I wonder how many sermons need to stink in a row before you think, I'm going to go find another church. I've been considering it, man, but he helped me push over the line. We're out of here. But let me, let me just say something if it comes to connection and connection being the reason that that might be a struggle for you. I want you to think about all your best friends, the ones that you're tight with. How did that happen and did it happen quick? Because I think you're probably very close to them, were you not? Cried together, laughed together, traveled together, worked together, struggled with each other, reconciled, struggled again, reconciled, laughed together some more. Time after time, Christmas goes by, another Christmas goes by. That's how they're made, isn't it? That's how you connect, isn't it? It doesn't happen 20 minutes a week, three weeks out of the month for four months. You're never going to connect. That's not where connection is at. That's not the way to do it. If you're trying to find growth, but you're not putting in the time to connect to somebody, then you're, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. You'll grow a little bit, and then you'll start growing weird after that. If you're not picking up the phone and purposing a call. You know, I was talking with someone this morning, and we were talking about trans, um, trans age or transgenerational mentorship. It was, it was cool talk. And, and this was a young man that said, hey, listen, man, I, I'd love a mentor in my life. I'd love someone that was older that could speak into my life, right? But this is what it takes. It takes picking up the phone and making that happen. 
Because, listen, if you're under the age of 25 or 30 and that's something that you desire, let me tell you what's not going to happen. You're not going to have some guy come up, some seasoned, salt-of-the-earth Christian come up and say, hey, I've been watching you, man, and you look like an up-and-comer, and I'd love to pour a lot of my time into you where it's totally inconvenient for me to make sure that you do well in life. How do you think about that? It's not, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to call them up and say, hey, I've been watching you. I would like for you to consider something. You have to make that happen. You have to make that happen. We have some brilliant moms in here. Brilliant moms. Young ladies. We have some brilliant men in here who have seen some stuff, who have slammed into some seasons. Young men. It takes some phone calls. It's, not ju- it's just not going to happen. Connections don't happen accidentally like that. And the ones that do, it takes a lot of time for something to perk up and something to happen, Right? If you always come late to things and you always leave early, not because your schedule's a mess, but because you just don't want to be around people, friends, come on. You're not going to grow. If you give up the first time you're offended, and that's the easy thing to do, you're not going to grow. Right? You'll never connect. It doesn't matter if the church is cool or boring or big or small. It doesn't matter. It's not a church thing. Think about if we approached marriage or dating like we do church shopping. We'd all be single. The human race would stop, you know. So do you like that girl? Well, I don't know. We're not really connecting. Well, are you talking to her? No, I haven't called her. Well, have y'all had any deep talks? No, not really. Why would you connect? I think the connection, what, what Matt was talking about was really helpful to me. Because when you know someone for a long amount of time and you work and live with them, that close proximity, it allows conversations to happen over time that mature. Your conversations mature, don't they? Or they should. Your conversations should mature. And they can. They, can. they have the potential of sounding something like, hey, now we've known each other for a while. I've noticed over the last three or four months, though, that whenever you come in the room with your wife, you're always sitting across the room from her. Is something we can talk about? Hey, man, I've noticed that your mouth is getting kind of loose, or you're looking ragged, or I haven't seen you in a while. Those conversations don't come just knowing someone for two months, does it? No, that comes after a connected life, but that takes time. It also allows you to come up to someone and say, hey, I've got to make this big decision, but I'm pretty sure I'm screwing it up. I just don't know where I'm screwing it up. Can you help me see this in a better light? Because I'm just not getting it. You know, I'm very thankful for these relationships. As I said earlier, I've profited much from this teaching, and, I, and again, I still struggle with it. But this week, I was sitting with Matt Norman. He was just up here talking, and I'm sitting with Matt, and he asks me, Luke, how are you doing? Now, I've known Matt for four years. He was the very first couple to, to be in Legacy Church. So he was here from the living room, from the couch, all the way up to here. And, and as I'm telling him how I'm doing, and I'm laying it all out there and lining it all out, something came out of my mouth. Not like F-bomb came out of my mouth, but like a statement came out of my mouth that it seemed pretty normal to me. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just catch that you just said that? Something just came out of your mouth. You just said something that it sounds a little off. It sounds more legalistic than grace. It sounds like you're not really growing right there. And now he didn't like start swinging on me or anything, but he leaned into me enough to let me know I'm calling you out a little bit. Guess what? Year one, we're not having that conversation. Year two, maybe, but I don't know if I would have received it very well. 
Year three, we're both open to those conversations. Here it is at year four. I, I, I don't miss a beat. I'm like, thanks, man. You're right. You're right. How sweet it is to have relationships like this. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Here he is in front of the court again. That didn't take long, did it? Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, so he interrupts him, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. This is an odd sentence. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Okay, pause. This is what's happening. Sosthenes is kind of like the chief Indian of the group that's bringing Paul to court. And he, it ends up blowing up in his face. He gets beat. So Paul's probably thinking, wait, what? What? Usually I'm taking the blows right now. He's getting beat. So he's probably thinking about slipping out the side door before it gets any crazier than this. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, and with him, look who's going, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Golly. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus, not too different from Corinth. Ephesus was the largest city in Asia. Larger than, than Corinth. Much larger than Athens. And he leaves his cool couple there alone. Alone. In a new city. To plant a church. How on earth would they even know how to do that? 18 months of discipleship from one of the most brilliant church planters on planet earth. That's how. Discipleship. Close proximity. Lots of time. Now they're planting a church. They're planting a church. Paul, and this is one thing that you might have seen in this. I love this, how God in his design works. He's so brilliant. Remember back in chapter 16, Paul had already tried to get to Ephesus. He already tried to stop and, and, and preach the gospel in Asia. This was something that he wanted to do, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbade him. It's as if God knew the whole time, and I'm sure he did, that it wouldn't be Paul starting that church. It wouldn't be Timothy or Silas. It would be this young, cool couple that Paul hadn't even met yet. God is so brilliant. He's so brilliant. This is the second point in how Jesus' people find growth. Jesus' people find growth in great risk and in great responsibility. Great risk and responsibility. This couple relocates its business, their business and their life to a totally different city. And they're going to plant a church, which means they're going to be responsible for the city and responsible for the people. As business owners, you don't really have to be. But as pastors, you do. So they're taking responsibility. When I think of risk, spiritually, what I'm, what I'm talking about is putting yourself in a place that unless God moves, everything miserably fails. The most important times of growth in my life have been when I've crawled out on some branches that were going to snap 
unless God did something miraculous. It puts you in a place of total dependence. It puts you in a place of just waiting, thinking, studying, praying, trusting, doubting again, trusting again, doubting again, trusting again. Lots of growth found there. Putting yourself in these places. Let me tell you what won't get you that education, a book or a class. (laughs) A class isn't going to teach you that. You're not going to get that in a book. You've got to get out there and do it. Listen, we have a handful of families in this church that moved here from across the country just to plant Legacy Church. They, they, they left everything. The Haulers, the Harrises, the Plogs, the Gentries. They left everything to come here. New jobs, new schools for their kids. Ask them. Walk up to any of them today and ask them, what, did they grow in that whole thing? Are you kidding me? They grew. Still to this day, the steepest plot on my growth line was three weeks after I became a Christian, and they asked me to start a campus ministry. So I couldn't even start a conversation back then, you know? I don't know anything about anything. I think I had like a Gideon's Bible. That's it. And so I'm starting a campus ministry, and it started to blow up. It went from me and my knucklehead roommate to like 50 people, like in one semester. And people were getting baptized and I was having to deal with suicides and wrecked marriages and, and students being students. I had to learn a lot. I'd put myself in a risky position, risky for my grades, risky for my time. I was responsible beyond anything I'd ever had responsibility for in the past, and I grew. Growth was found there. Some of us in here, we want to grow, but we don't want to take risks, and we don't want to take responsibility for anything. And that's going to be a problem for you. You might want to drive across town to reach a people, but you'll never move across town to be among the people. You might stick a picture on your refrigerator, you know, a a ministry in Africa that's feeding orphans, but you might not adopt an orphan, right? You might sit next to the person that you're sitting next to, but you're not going to take responsibility for them. If that's a little bit more of your heart's disposition, friends, you're not going to grow. Growth isn't found there. If you just give a bit of yourself, but not all of yourself, and you don't risk it, you don't own something that you have to clean from time to time, you won't grow. So start something. Join something. Join the worship team. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know. I've only played an instrument for 19 years. I don't know if I can risk getting up there. I don't know if I'll be any good or not, you know? Join something. Start a calm group. Some of you, you've got a mission rattling around in you, and you really want to try something. You see a part of of Knoxville that jumps out, and you're like, I really want to be in the middle of that. Join a comm group. Give your money in a risky way. Give it to the church. Give it to a person. Give it to a ministry. Give your time in a risky way. Put yourself in a position where God needs to move. Take some responsibility. Invite a neighbor over for dinner. Not that neighbor, the other neighbor. The hard neighbor. Not the Christian neighbor, but that neighbor. And develop a relationship with them. Start something. Find a branch to sit on that could snap. Very well could snap unless God does something. This is how you grow. You will grow there. You will find growth there. Verse 22. When he had landed, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. 
And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, new introduction, very cool guy. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he, was powerfully refu- for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so what's going on right here is like ships passing in the night. Paul is leaving Ephesus. Apollos is coming in. And this guy is a stud. He comes from Alexandria, which has a reputation from cranking out some of the world's greatest minds especially speaking minds, orators, communicators. Alexandria was just this, it was like the Harvard for public speaking, right? And this guy was well taught, and the Bible says he was eloquent. That's not just a descriptive term, that was a title given to a special kind of speaker. To be considered an eloquent speaker, you had to surpass just your better than average speaker. You had to be persuasive, you had to be engaging to be eloquent. And not only was he eloquent, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, fervent in the spirit and not only that he nails it when it comes to jesus in the ministry we call that a high christology he understood jesus he's any church would be happy to have a guy like this at the pulpit he's got the whole package but he's got one problem he's got a little bit of a wonky theology when it comes to baptism he misses it when it comes to baptism He doesn't teach a Christian baptism like what we know today, but one lot like what John the Baptist used to teach, which was a baptism of repentance. In fact, that's why some scholars believe that this guy was probably a disciple of John the Baptist himself. Now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't really matter. All we need to know at this juncture is that he was missing it at a pretty key place in theology. So what this young couple does, Aquila and Priscilla, is they pull him aside and they teach him more accurately They help him understand what is going on in a more accurate way. Again, how did they know what to teach? How did they know what to teach? Paul spent a lot of time with them, 18 months. Let me remind you, they're not talking to a pothead just got saved. They're talking to a guy who is highly educated, came from the, the highest of all seminaries, was incredibly gifted, And they're instructing him. They're doing pastoral instruction. It's interesting. Leads me to my third point. Jesus' people will find growth in humility. In humility. How easy do you think this was for Apollos to handle? Being instructed like this. I'm not Apollos. But this would have been hard for me. Because here he is, he's this stud, and they're this blue-collar couple. Oh, and by the way, there was a woman in the mix. That would be a problem today for a lot of proud people, pronounced figures. It was going to be a problem back then, too. A pretty big problem. So, I guess you didn't get the memo, because I'm Apollo, see. 
And you're telling me that my theology is a little weird, but I went, I went to the best seminary in the world, and Don Carson was my blah, 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 and I got logos on my computer, and don't you know who I am? I'm on conference schedules. Should you check my LinkedIn before you come up and tell me how to do my thing? I'm the Delio. I'm Apollos. That might have been in his heart. It would have been in most of our hearts. Not only that, but stack on top of that the shame of teaching the wrong thing for such a long time. Because when the pulpit goes sideways, <laughs> the people go sideways a lot of times. In fact, next week we're going to look at the passage where Paul bumps into some of these people. He bumps into 12 guys from Ephesus. And they're cool guys, but guess what's wrong with their theology? Baptism. Where do you think they got that? Most likely Apollos. Most likely. So, being humble. It's not the quickest way to grow. I will say it's the only way to grow. Being humble. It's the only way to grow. Being humble says, I am approachable and I'm able to be corrected. I'm not the master of the universe when it comes to theology and life. So you can talk to me, and you can talk to me frankly, and you can push on me. That's humility. It's humility. I've struggled with this for a long time. I still struggle with this. And it's very important for us to grow. Our hearts want to resist this, though. We want to be above correction, don't we? And we usually do. That's, we usually find ourselves being critical of people that don't think like we think. Usually think that we're always in a room full of idiots. We're the smartest person in the room, if anyone cared to ask. We're the smartest person in this room, you know? And it's hard to grow whenever you're that unapproachable. Some of us, some of us are struggling in our growth because of that very thing. We're just not very humble. We're very proud. And we've got to lay our glory down. I'm saying we because I'm with you. We have to lay our glory down. We have to lay it down. The good way to do this, just as a quick application, is just go up to the people that you are doing life with and say, hey, what do you see? Hey, try this with your spouse later on, by the way, too. What do you see in my life that needs to be corrected? All right, no, no, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Tell me what it is you see in my life that is just wrong. You've always wanted to say it, but you've held back a little bit. But come on, we know each other. What is it? And then ask them again, and then ask them again. It shows an approachable heart. That's where you're going to find growth. That's where you're going to find growth. Listen, all of these things have something in common. Time, vulnerability, transparency, risk, responsibility, humility, all these things that I've brought up, it requires us to empty ourselves. That's where growth is found. If it's found when you empty yourself, when you deplete yourself. Look at Matthew, forgive me, Mark 8. Mark 8, verse 34. It's a very familiar passage to most people. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Listen, if we try to hold on to what we are trying to hold on to, we won't grow, friends. Think about what we've talked about. If you try to hold on to your isolation and your big bubble, if you try to hold on to your comfortable schedule so you're not spending time with anybody, if you try to hold on to your privacy so no one knows anything about you, if you try to hold on to your pride thinking you're more brilliant than the rest of the world and you're critical of if you try to hold on to those things, you simply won't grow. You won't grow. 
Jesus emptied himself, though. He models something for us, doesn't he, and how he approaches the cross? He models something for us, not holding anything, emptying himself. Right? He, he, Jesus is actually the perfect disciple. He is the perfect discipler, but did you know he's the perfect disciple? Some of you might be thinking, but Luke, that means he has to learn, right? But Jesus did learn things. Did you know that? Here it says in Hebrews 5, verse 8, although he learned obedience through what he suffered, he learned and didn't sin. That Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, this is his model for us. It's not a church's model. This isn't Legacy's idea of discipleship, understand. Discipleship isn't something that came out of our combined brilliance. It came out of the gospel. He shows us. And if you are finding yourself today in a place where you're not growing, that means you're holding on to things. You're holding on to things. Your arms are bloated holding on to stuff, and because you can't put them down, you're not picking up your cross. Whether you're holding on to your time, your privacy, holding on to your ideas that can't even be approached because they're so awesome, holding on to whatever it is, you're not growing. You've got to put it all down. You've got to, hear me again, you've got to empty yourself. You've got to lay it down. You've got to spend more time than you feel comfortable with. You've got to get closer with people than you're really comfortable with. You have to invite reproof and encouragement from people that you might be uncomfortable with. You have to do things. And I know what the heart's recoil is, because my heart's recoiling even as I preach it. What the heart wants to say in that moment is, but, but Luke, but Luke, if I give all that stuff up, I won't have anything left. Then I won't have anything left. True, you won't, but you'll get more God. You'll get more God when you put these things down. You will grow. Whoever loses self for the gospel's sake will save it, the passage says. You will get more God. Now, I'm forever thankful for Ray Ortland coming up with that phrase that the gospel unselfs us. I'm probably going to tattoo that somewhere. <laughs> I love that word, unselfs us. The gospel does. It takes us out of the center and tells us to put our things down, the things that we hoard, the things that we bear hug. And we grow when we do this. We grow to look more like the one who formed us with his very hands. So I just want to speak to a couple groups. If you go ahead and stand with me, we're finished. But I want to speak to a couple groups before Wes comes back out and tells you what's about to happen. I want to talk to the spoon-fed, and I want to talk to the disconnected for a moment. Hear me. Hear me clearly. If the church, any church, cannot lift the spoon to your mouth, will you starve to death right now? Will you starve to death? And should you have had a menu change from milk to meat by now? Is it possible you're not finding growth, not because you haven't found the perfect place, but because you are, you are depending and breaking everything around you to feed you because you're not feeding yourself? Is that happening? Are you not connected because you're not breaking a sweat to connect yourself? You're giving it the old college try for a month or two or four, on to the next church, month, two, five months, on to the next church, month, two, looking for like some magical situation. I have no idea what you're looking for. 
but it won't happen in a few months. It takes time. Some of you in here I'd like to talk to are just a bit prideful. And I know how exhausting that is, always being the smartest guy in the room. Who can speak to you right now? I've asked myself this question. Who can speak to you? Really? Don't just cop out and say your spouse. Of course your spouse. Who can really speak to you, though? Same sex. Really lay into your grill and tell you how it is. And do you see yourself above that person? Do you hear them but not really hear them? Do you maybe look down on what they say? Because, friend, you're not growing. And if you are growing, you're growing weird. Growing in a weird direction. And then I want to talk just for a second to the unresponsible, not the irresponsible, the unresponsible. The ones who won't pick up responsibility. The ones who won't take risks. Have you created a life where you don't even need God to move at all? That tends to be the quest for a lot of us. Can we insulate our lives with so many contingency plans that if God just disappears altogether, we wouldn't even notice? Is that something that you've created for yourself? Or are you putting yourself in a place that unless God moves, it all comes apart? Listen, it's scary and you will grow. You will grow. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. You're showing us. Timothy, you're showing us the teaching in 2 Timothy where Paul is talking to this couple. This couple is talking to Apollos, and Apollos is planting churches that will plant churches that will plant churches. God, your brilliance is that your gospel goes from generation to generation, and discipleship is the vehicle. And we thank you. We thank you for being so good and so clear to us in the Bible. Your word is so clear to us. We don't have to be creative with it. We, don't have, we can just read it. It just teaches us. And Father, I know I just want to speak for the, the proud, spoon-fed, disconnected people in here. God, help us. Help, our, help my heart. Lord, that I would be approachable. That we would be an approachable people. Help our hearts, Father, that we would not just go, well, I can't connect. No one's like me. I'm just going to guess be disconnected and then, and then leave. Father, we will lose people. 25% of this church might not be here in several months, but Father, let it not because we couldn't connect. Father, help us see what that really means. Help us see how we're supposed to be fed. It's good. It's good for us to be instructed and taught by those around us. But Father, may it be that you are growing in us a faith that when that doesn't happen, we don't just shrivel up and blow away. Father, we love you and we thank you for your gospel. You were the best disciple ever and you showed us how to disciple. You were so good to us. You emptied yourself. You had all the glory. You have all the glory and you emptied yourself. And you showed us how beautiful salvation is. And you just handed it to us as a gift. You were so graceful to us, God. You just gave us something that we didn't even deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite. You give us grace. Lord, that we would be a church that would understand that and because of that, give grace to those that we work with, even though they don't deserve it and they deserve the opposite. Lord, that we would be a church of disciples making disciples when it's hard, when it's costly, when it's risky, 
when it requires more responsibility than we want to give, when it requires more time than we want to give, that we would be a church that disciples each other and disciples the city. Not because it's the cool thing to do, but because you've shown us how to do it and you've given us the freedom to do it. Well, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.